Hi, this is Brent White. It's Friday, March 2nd, and this is podcast number 18. You're listening to the band Blondie and their 1979 hit, Dreaming, from their album Eat to the Beat. I'm playing this song because today's scripture, Genesis 28, 10 through 22, is all about dreaming, specifically a dream that Jacob had when he was on the run from his murderous brother Esau. He was on the run from Esau because he tricked Esau out of his inheritance and, a little later, his father's blessing. So Esau is understandably angry at his little brother. He vows to kill Jacob as soon as his father dies and the period of grieving is over. Rebecca learns of Esau's intentions and sends Jacob, her favorite son, to live with her brother Laban, in whom, as you'll see if you read the next several chapters, Jacob fully meets his match, at least in terms of cheating and deceiving. What a family! (laughs) You've got to admire the way the Bible tells the unvarnished truth about its heroes. Regardless, while Jacob is on his way to his uncle Laban's place, Jacob camps for the night in a deserted place called Luz, later called Bethel. He uses a stone for a pillow, which for some reason always captured my imagination when I heard the story in vacation Bible school or Sunday school growing up. Imagine using a stone for a pillow. And while he dreams, God gives him a vision. He sees a ladder to heaven, or more likely, a stairway to heaven, with angels ascending and descending on it, moving from heaven to earth and back. And there is an interesting analogy to Christ, which Christ himself makes in John 1, 51. But right now, I'm interested in what God tells Jacob in his dream. God says, beginning in verse 13, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I will keep you wherever you go, God says, and will bring you back to this place, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. What a promise! This is an ironclad guarantee, isn't it? I'm going to do all these things for you, God says even though clearly Jacob has done nothing to deserve it. And and it doesn't depend at all on, on what Jacob does for God. This is an unconditional promise. God is absolutely committing himself to do good for Jacob. In a recent podcast, Pastor John Piper recounts the Apostle Paul's experience in Jerusalem in Acts 23. The day after Paul appeared before the Jewish ruling council in Jerusalem, we're told in verses 12 and following that a group of more than 40 men conspire with the chief priests and elders to kill Paul. And they mean business, too. 
They have sworn an oath that they will neither eat nor drink until Paul is dead. But that's not going to happen. You see, the night before they hatched this plan, Jesus came to Paul in a vision and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God's plans for Paul did not include his being killed by this particular mob. Piper put it like this, Until Paul fulfilled the mission that God had for him, he was immortal. <laughs> Think about that. Immortal. He was unkillable. He could not die. He would not die. The same was true for Jacob. Esau couldn't kill him. He would return to this place from which he was running. All of God's promises were, were going to come true. Between now and when Jacob returned to the promised land, however long it took for God's plan to come to fruition, Jacob had no need to fear. He was immortal also. What about us? Do we who are God's children through faith in Christ dare to imagine that something similar is true for us? Do we dare to imagine that God has a plan for us? He has a mission for us. He has work for us to do on this earth. And between now and when that work is done, between now and when that mission is fulfilled, nothing can kill us. Well, that's that's kind of cool to think about, right? If I'm right... That means God has a plan for our lives, the same way he had a plan for Jacob's life and Paul's life. Or do we not think that we count enough in God's eyes for him to have a plan for our lives? That God only has a plan for the important people, not for us. I brought this up in my sermon last Sunday, but it's worth reiterating here. When we pray in the Lord's Prayer for our deliverance from the evil one, the devil, we are praying in part that God will protect us from what Satan probably does best, which is to accuse us. Remember, Satan's name literally means the accuser. He likes to make us feel worthless, to make us feel like failures, to make us feel discouraged, to make us feel sorry for ourselves, to make us feel defeated until we resign ourselves to living a life of what I called in Sunday's sermon, Christian mediocrity. When we live a life of Christian mediocrity, Satan has convinced us that God couldn't possibly care about us enough to have a plan for our lives. Contrast this life of Christian mediocrity with victorious Christian living, by which I mean a life characterized by an irrepressible joy, no matter the circumstances, a life characterized by continual prayer, by a love for and devotion to God's word, by an earnest desire to glorify God in all things, to do his will and be holy, by a commitment to be a witness to others, by generosity toward God through our financial giving, by tithing, when we hear about someone who lives a victorious Christian life, do we think that kind of life is for 
other Christians, Christians who are obviously better than I am, who haven't sinned as much as I have, who who don't have all the problems that I have in my life, who are younger, richer, prettier, healthier, you name it. I can give you a list of reasons why I am not that kind of Christian, unfortunately. But I'm not, and, and I won't be. That's for somebody else. I had a conversation once with a parishioner who was angry toward her brothers and sisters in Christ and refused to forgive them for some hurt that they caused her. I was sympathetic. She had been hurt, no doubt. But this anger was eating her up inside. I I pointed her to Matthew 18 um, about Jesus' words about forgiveness and reconciliation. I pointed her to some of the Apostle Paul's words. She said, I'm sorry I'm not Jesus or Paul. Of course, being Jesus or being Paul wasn't my point. I wanted her to imagine that through Christ, there's a better way to live than to be a bitter, put-upon, angry, resentful victim. And believe me, I know from whence I speak. But this person felt stuck. She felt helpless. This is who I am because of what others have done to me. I'm 50 years old and I can't change. It's sad, isn't it, to believe that even God can't change things for the better. And yet I don't doubt for a moment the sincerity of this person's Christian faith. But for some reason she had resigned herself to a life of Christian mediocrity. How does that happen? It happens in part by listening to and believing the devil's lies. As you all know, Billy Graham died last week. Even though he had lived the last 15 years or so out of the public spotlight and had been dealing with debilitating illness, he remained one of the top 10 most admired Americans in public surveys. But here's what I want us to consider. As much as we admire Billy Graham for his success in bringing millions to saving faith in Christ in the second half of the 20th century, as much as we admire his ability to fill stadiums and be the unofficial chaplain to presidents and royalty, we admire him at least as much or more for his integrity, his character, the person he was off stage, away from the limelight. Here's someone, after all, who enjoyed worldwide fame, admiration, and power, yet he was untainted by even a hint of sexual or financial scandal. With Billy Graham, what you saw was what you got. How did he do that? How did he remain so humble? Graham often explained his success with the following illustration. If you are walking down a road, he said, and you happen to see a turtle sitting on top of a fence post, what would you assume? You would, of course, assume that the turtle did not climb up there on his own. You would assume that someone far larger than the turtle picked him up and then placed him atop the tall post for some mysterious reason. Living a victorious Christian life like Graham, rather than living a life of Christian mediocrity like so many other Christians, means recognizing that, yes, by all means, we can't change. But God can change us. Why don't we believe that He will 
change us? Or why do we so often fail to believe that he'll change us? Because guess what? The same power that made Billy Graham, well, Billy Graham, is the same power that's living within us. We have the same Holy Spirit living within us. We have the same Bible, the same capacity to listen to God speak to us through it every day as Graham did. The same capacity to go to the throne room of heaven every day and talk to our Heavenly Father as Graham did. We have the same Spirit praying through our own spirits to our Father as Graham did. We have access to the same all-sufficient grace to face any challenge that life throws our way the way Graham did. Each one of us potentially is a turtle waiting for God to lift him up and put him on that fence post. Sure, it won't be as high a post as the one that God put Billy Graham on, but it will be off the ground, and it will be a place we can't climb to on our own. If only we'll trust the one who can put us there. How desperately we need to do that. How desperately we need to dream a new dream, a bolder dream than we had before. In today's scripture, God promised Jacob a great inheritance in the future, but God promises us an even greater one. Listen to 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. According to his great mercy, he, that is our Father, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So, between now and when we receive that imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance in heaven at our death, between now and then, we are immortal. Because God has a plan for us that he wants us to carry out. Will we be faithful to do it? Or will we settle for a life of Christian mediocrity? Oh God, let us be faithful to fulfill the plan that you have for each one of us. Amen. Amen.